So we are in part two of a series entitled Our Faithful High Priest, and I entitled this morning's message, The Perfect Priest. So let me begin with some thoughts. Adam and Eve were given originally some very heavy, some very powerful charges, commands, jobs, tasks, however you want to look at it. And those commands were things like, I want you to subdue the world. That's kind of a big deal. Um, God said, I'm putting all the animals in subjection under you and I want you to master them. I want you to master my creation on my behalf. I want you to be a good steward, a good manager of the creation that I put you over. You are the pinnacle of my earthly creation, and therefore all the beasts of the earth, all the fish of the sea, they are underneath you, and I want you to manage them well. How do we do with that? Not awesome, okay? We are pretty dismal, because what ultimately happened was that we put ourselves first, We made it about us, not about God. And what that did in saying no to God is that we no longer could even manage ourselves. Adam and Eve spun into personal drama, personal chaos, and it ended up spinning into our lineage. So everyone's been broken ever since. Not only did we not manage God's creation very well, which as you can tell, boy, it sure doesn't look great, does it? I mean, we've completely ruined our world. We haven't managed at all good. And so in many respects, we failed in doing the one task that God set before us originally. Now, that's not the end of the story. There's more to it, which we're going to talk about today. But what it did is it left us two major problems, both of which we're very familiar with and we talk about a lot. The first one is what we would deem as sin. When we said no to God and we began to utilize that option of saying, well, we can either make it about us or make it about him. We created a problem that disrupted the very core of our essence. And ever since we've been rotten at the very core of who we are, we don't now sin and become sinners. We are sinners and therefore we sin. Now, we understand that problem. We understand that uh, if you've been in church for any length of time, that's an inescapable problem. You cannot solve the sin problem for yourself. You're the one that has become the sinner. You're the one that has become the violator of the great covenant. And so, therefore, the only way for you to pay for that is with your own life. So this inescapable sin problem. What do we do with that? Well, that's what's so extraordinary about Jesus Christ. He came in and handled that scenario. So when we start talking about the nature of Christ and how he effectually handled our sin problem and saved our souls and redeemed us back. And when we talk about all that theological stuff, the reason why it matters to you is because of this. It's personal. Let me just read a verse to you. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read two verses to you out of 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 says this. John, who we know to be the beloved of Christ, basically one of Jesus' best friends, writes this. He's writing a letter to people he cares about. He said, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So let me just handle that real quick. 
I'm writing this to you so that you won't sin. Why do we have the Bible? So that we won't sin. You go, what, what, what do you mean? Well, let me clarify. Sin is rebellion against God. It's not doing what God wants. It's not an ooze. We talk about sin like it's some, some thick, slimy ooze. Like, oh my gosh, I've sin on me. Get it off. Get it off, right? That's kind of how we act. Or, oh, sin's after me. It's like this big blob thing, right? Sin means not doing what God asked you to do. Or doing what God told you not to do. That's actually what sin is by definition. It's a violation of his nature. So why do we have the Bible? So we'll know what God's will is and follow that, right? Now, a lot of us look at the Bible and we get really irritated. Man, the Bible's full of rules and regulations and it talks about what I'm not supposed to do. Hold up. We want that. Why? Because if not, we got to guess. And that's dangerous. Right? Let's go Old Testament when God used to still kill people. Right? Now, this is how it would work if we didn't have the Bible. Hey, I wonder if I'm supposed to do that. I don't know. You go try it. You blow up. I guess not. That's a bad idea. Okay, I'm not going to do that. Okay, do you understand? We're barely going to get out of a couple generations here without everyone exploding all the time. Now, it's very useful to have God go, hey, before you all get started and before I blow everyone up, can I just tell you what I want? And what I don't want, that's nice. The Bible's nice in that regard. Yeah? We don't want to guess. Move forward, he says, Now, my little children, I've written these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, oh, that's us. Right? We all raise our hand. Yeah, it's me. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Why does it matter what Jesus did? Because he solved your sin problem, my sin problem. That's pretty cool. What's propitiation? Well, it's a fancy word that we don't like very much because it sounds weird, but it's a pretty cool meaning, and we're going to talk about it because it's in Hebrews 2. So we'll talk about it. But what in essence it just said was, yeah, you had a problem and Jesus Christ fixed it. You want to know how he did that? Awesome. Let's talk about it. The other major problem that we have is not just our sin nature, but it's all the habitual patterns that we have done in saying no to God that now we're having a hard time turning the car around, right? And we end up in what we would consider practical bondage where we can't stop doing things we can't stop the wrong that we do we've done it wrong for so long we can't wrap our heads around what it is to do it right in that bondage in that insanity we need some help but here's what's intriguing about it the bible says that he who the sun sets free will be free indeed why aren't we free If Jesus has truly paved the way for freedom, and I'm going to suggest to you that he has paved the way for not only freedom, but victory. If that is true, why are we still sitting in a cage crying? That's weird. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. There is nothing you need that he has not done. 
There is nothing that you need that he has not done. Understand, I did not say there is nothing that you want that he has not given you. That is incorrect. As a matter of fact, you go, I don't want to suffer. And he will say, you need to suffer. That's a different ballgame. But there is nothing that you need that Jesus Christ has not procured for you. Amen? Amen. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. It's page 1001 in the Bibles under the seats. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. Now, remember where we're at in the series. We call this the better letter, yeah? And what we were talking about is that in that day and age, to the group that the author was writing to, they had an unhealthy fascination with angels. They had an unhealthy fascination with Moses and the forefathers. And they were really wrestling with the idea of letting go of Judaism and clinging to what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And their heads were going back and forth and they were thinking about returning back to Judaism. So the author systematically goes through and says, don't you dare let go of what Jesus did or who he is because he's better than this and this and this and this and this. So we're still in the angel part. He's still breaking apart and saying, stop with the whole fascination. Uh, angels are more important than the Messiah and we got to worship angels. Stop with all that. That's garbage. It's about Jesus Christ, he says. And so he's still going through that argument. And that's where we pick it up in chapter two, verse five. Now I'm going to read verses five through eight to get a groove and then we'll go back and tear it apart. For it is not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking for it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Let's pray for the word this morning. Heavenly father, by the power of your Holy spirit, would you open up your word to us? Reveal yourself. Lord, allow all of us to forget the opinions of man and believe the truth of God. Lead us into your way everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. What is the world to come? Now, if you and I were to talk about it and I said, man, are you looking forward to the world to come? You would automatically think what? Heaven. I mean, I would assume that's what you're thinking. That's not what they're thinking. You got to jump out of modern day American mindset back into ancient Judaic mindset. And when the Jews would think about the future, remember, they only saw time in two pieces. There was the present age, which was lame. And there was the future age, which was awesome. Remember I said that last time and I said, I did it in that stupid way. So you'd remember it. Okay. Fantastic. In their future age, what they think that was so amazing, they viewed it very different than the way that we view heaven. They weren't thinking of heaven and eternity necessarily at all. They were thinking about when the Messiah would come to earth, set up a kingdom all the promises to the Jewish people would be fulfilled here on earth. The curse would be reversed there would be an amazing, bountiful land. The deserts would turn into beautiful places. And ruling from Jerusalem, the Messiah would allow Israel to rise up to prominence 
and things would be wonderful. That was their view of the age to come. He said, using their same reasoning, listen, all this stuff that we're talking about moving forward. Now, is that true? What I just said, is there going to be a time like that? Well, those of you that were with, uh, with me during the Revelation series, we talked about a time that sounds exactly like this. It's called the what? The millennium. Everybody remember that? Right? Think about it in terms of the millennium falcon. Okay, right? Han Solo from Star Wars. Those of you that don't know that, doesn't matter. Here we go. The millennium is a thousand-year reign of Christ. And you go, well, when's that going to happen? Well, the way that it appears to be in Scripture, and we don't know how everything's going to happen, we're doing a lot of guesswork, is that the world starts to wrap up. We have the tribulation. That's the whole Antichrist thing. Everything kind of gets nasty and mean and persecution and yucky. And Jesus Christ comes down and lays the hammer down on the enemy. Launches, puts Satan into prison for a thousand years. During that thousand year, Jesus reigns here on earth. And then at the end, Satan is released for a short time. Then he's grabbed, thrown into the lake of fire, and the eternal state begins. Everybody remember that? Yeah. All right. Now that period is really what was in mind here. And we believe that that period will occur. Why? Because it's a fulfillment to the Jewish people what was promised. Okay? All right, now, back into the text. The author says, that whole process is not for the angels. It's for us. Stop exalting angels like everything's about the angels. It's not. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It was not for them that all that's going to take place and be under them. They're not going to rule during that time. That's not the point. For it has been testified somewhere. Now he's about to quote scripture. How weird is that? Man, it says somewhere. What do you mean somewhere? You don't know where it is? That's really weird because we know where it is. We know that it's in Psalm 8. Did he really not know? Of course he knew. He is a scholar of Jews writing to scholarly Jews. You think they don't know the Psalms? They know the Psalms backwards and forwards by heart. When he says it's been said somewhere, he's being elusive for a purpose. I believe that he removed his name from the text. We don't even know who the author of this book is for a purpose. What is his likely purpose? His likely purpose is to say, does it matter? You want me to cite and say that it was David? I thought it was God talking to us. Who cares who the human agent was that got it to us? Is it or is it not the word of God? Therefore, God is talking to us. I don't want to get into whether or not it was David or not. Who cares? It says somewhere in the word of God, from the word of God, this. And he begins to quote out, all right? Now, this happens to be Psalm 8, 4 through 6. And he's making an argument from that psalm. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. All right. We run into our first challenge. Is this talking about mankind in general, like us? Or is it talking about Jesus? Well, it can talk about either. As a matter of fact, they both apply. 
Why? Because when God created Adam and Eve, did he not for a little while, meaning our lifespan is not that long. Let's say we're 85 years, 90 years here. I mean, in church here, man, everybody is so strong here. They're all like Moses, right? At 110, they have all their strength. You know, you're like, wow, that's weird. But understand worldwide, we have a shortened lifespan. It's about 85, maybe 75 to 90 years old. That's not very long for a little while, for a short amount of time for the creation here on earth in light of eternity for a little while, he made mankind a little lower than the angels. What does that mean? Well, practically speaking, if it means angels, we can all agree that we're a little bit lower than they are. Yeah, we can all go, wow, they're faster than we are. Wow, they're smarter than we are. Wow, they're stronger than we are. I mean, we can all own that, right? Here's what's trippy about that passage, just as a side note. Remember I told you when we first launched this book that the author uses the Septuagint to quote from. That's the Greek version of the Old Testament. Why is that important? Because we use the Hebrew version of the Old Testament in our Bibles. Why does he use the other one? Because it's different. Here's where it's different. In the Greek one, it says lower than the angels. In the Hebrew one that we use, it says a little lower than Elohim. What's Elohim mean? God. Whoa, that's a little different. How'd they mix those two up? Because the angels are called sons of God. Little lower. No matter what it means, I'm not... I guess I want to suggest that it's not an insult. If you're made a little lower than angels, that's still pretty awesome. If you're made a little lower than God, it's still pretty awesome, right? We can all agree that we are the pinnacle of God's earthly creation. That's pretty amazing. And we should be thankful for that. But still lower. Does it apply to man? It sure does. Why would we think it applies to Jesus? Because it says, son of man. Remember, that's Jesus' favorite title for himself. He used it from Daniel, right? Oh, man, I love that title, son of man, and it means this, and I'm a representative of mankind, and I'm a new kind of leader and a good kind of ruler. And Is it talking about Jesus? I'm going to suggest to you that where we're going to go in this passage, it can apply to either. In this verse, it's a little weird to apply it to Jesus because it says, what is the son of man that you would care for him? Well, he's important. But moving forward, you're going to find that he bounces back and forth. The author goes back and forth from mankind to Jesus Christ, mankind to Jesus Christ. And he won't tell you when he's doing it. All right. Because Jesus Christ became flesh and dwelt among us. He became and took on humanity. All right. Track with me. Here we go. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. If it's talking about Jesus, because we just learned last week that God said, I want you to sit at my right hand until I put all your enemies, what? Under your feet as a footstool for your feet. So it does apply to Jesus. But can you use words like, and he, what, gave him a crown, he gave him honor, he gave him glory. Can you use those things about Jesus? How does Jesus get stuff? How do you use a phrase like, and he made him a little lower than the angels? How do you use a phrase about Jesus that says you made him? That's weird. Isn't Jesus God? Isn't God eternal? God isn't made. How does that work? Let me make the point a little clearer. 
Have you ever noticed in scripture that there's weird things about Jesus that things that he couldn't do? If Jesus is God and we argued, remember our fill in the blank from last week was Jesus is nothing less than God. Do you remember that? Then how do you account for the fact that Jesus got tired? God doesn't get tired. How do you account for the fact that Jesus didn't know things? God knows everything. God is omniscient, all-knowing. Yet, when the disciples said, Jesus, when are you going to return and come back? He said, I don't know. The Father knows that. Wait, what? You don't know? How about this? Jesus was not omnipresent. God is omnipresent all places at the same time. Yet we read, and Jesus was in Capernaum, and then Jesus was in Nazareth, and then Jesus was over in this region. Now, Jesus was fast, but he was not omnipresent, right? How do we know that? Because after he walked on water, he got into the boat, and instantly it was on the other side of the shore. So we know he's super fast, but he's still not omnipresent. How do you have God, who we know he is, Grow up. Anybody have a weird thing about that? He was a baby at one point. How do you reconcile that? I mean, what? Is he just, right when he comes out of the womb, he's like, thus saith the Lord, right? (laughs) And they're like, can we cut the umbilical cord, sir? You know, he's like, I'll get back to you on that one, right? Where's my coffee? How do you reconcile all these things about God dying. Yeah. What I want to do is I want to answer those in a theological discussion with you. I want to talk about the dual nature of Jesus Christ of being fully God and fully man. You ready to go? Now, you're probably going to want to get the podcast because I'm going to go way too fast to take notes, but you can try. It's fun. (laughs) How do you glorify or give him a new name or seat him up high or do things? How do you add to God who is everything? All right, let's talk about it. First of all, things that you need to lock in. God by nature is eternal. Jesus Christ is fully God, will never cease to be fully God, never ceased to be fully God, will always be fully God. You need to lock that into your mind. That will not change. However, The second person of the Trinity that we know as the son of God, Jesus Christ, for the purpose of redeeming mankind, took on humanity and added it to his nature, came down here to die for us. Do we all agree with that? I mean, that's one of the tenets of Christianity. Was that costly to him? Massively costly. Why? Well, let's play the game a little bit. Let's say that you have full access at any moment to bend reality, right? You're the one that created it. You're the one that sustains it. At any moment, you alter and morph all of creation around you. You are in the presence of millions upon millions upon millions of angels worshiping you. Now, all of a sudden, you are now down here on earth, exhausted, tired, walking through dirt, people not even paying attention to you. When they do, they backstab you and betray you and hurt your feelings. You go from having all the glory of majesty, of sitting on the throne of God, to being a nobody, 
One author said it's akin to us wanting to talk to the animal race. Therefore, we enter in and become a cockroach. And we just scuttle around in refuse and garbage. I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus went much further than that. So how did he do it? What did he do? You need to use certain phrases that are a little bit weird. I was challenged last week by a gal here in church uh, when I said, when did Jesus become the son of God? And I said, well, Paul argues that it was at his resurrection. And I would look at it and say, well, it was kind of in his incarnation when he became a baby. She came back and said, hold up. If it's at his resurrection, why did the father use the term son at his baptism? That happened before his resurrection. If he's already using it, clearly he already had it. All right, let me clarify. Whenever you talk about the nature of God, you have to step out of time. God doesn't apply to time. We are so locked into time. Hey, what happened before? What happened after? Those phrases don't apply to God. There's no before, middle, after. There's no linear line. You're in a completely different realm. So the Bible says, and the son of God redeemed mankind, what? Before the creation of the world. How can they say that? Because it's outside of time. So when was Jesus, when did he become the son of God? Always. That's what's so weird about it. All right. Now, in the same way, you start realizing Jesus had dual nature, fully God, fully man. You use words like eternal and made about the same person. Okay, let's keep moving forward. Anybody lost yet? Here we go. When Jesus came down here, he set aside perks of being God. I've already explained those. He set aside omniscience, omnipresence. He set aside almighty. He set aside the ability to do all sorts of things. I'm going to suggest to you, he even set aside the ability to do miracles on his own accord. Why? Because there's a phrase that says, and he, did, and he could not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Do you remember that? What do you mean he could not? Do you remember the time when the woman touched him and he said, power has gone out from me? What's going on? Right? Why does he have a power charge? Why has he got a battery pack? Right? Weird, huh? Because that's not God. All right. So let me explain the best analogy that I know how. And I've shared it with you before, but I want you to lock it in your mind because it will open up the rest of the gospels. It's this. When the second person, the Trinity said, we're going to redeem mankind. Yeah. Heavenly father, Holy spirit, all high five. Yeah, let's do this. Right. Then the second person, the Trinity came down when he came down to this world, he blindfolded himself. What does that mean? It means he took off the perks of being God and put on humanity, blindfolded himself and said, father, where am I going? He took on limitations of humanity. Father, where am I going? Father says, three steps to your right. One, two, three. Yes. What are we doing now? All right. There's somebody in front of you. I want you to engage with them and heal them. Holy Spirit. Are we on? Yep. We're on. Gets his little charge. Right. I got one. <laughs> that was awesome. What that does is that at any moment, it didn't change his essential nature as God. He could take off the blindfold anytime he wants. He's still fully God, 
but he limited himself on purpose. Why? Partly to describe to us how we ought to live. Because why? You're not omniscient. You're not omnipresent. Neither am I. So he would withdraw and talk to the father on a consistent basis out in the quiet. Why does God need to talk to God? That's dumb. Because in his humanity, he needed downloads. Father, what are we doing? He would withdraw, get all his marching orders. That's right. And he moves. Then he would go around. Why does the Holy Spirit have to come on him at baptism? If he's God. Because in his humanity, the Holy Spirit came upon him like he did in the Old Testament with Samson. And all these other amazing figures of faith. The Holy Spirit would come upon him, empower him to do something extraordinary. Why? As an example on how we ought to live. It allows him to be limited. One other author said this. He said, how about you want to picture it like this? The fastest runner in the world tied in a three-legged race to somebody else. Is he still the fastest runner in the world? Well, in essence, yes, he is. Can he now create the same times? No. He's limited by what he attached himself to. Make sense? All right. The idea is now you can use phrases when he took on his humanity, like, and he was made this, and he was added this, and he had to handle this. Words that you don't normally use about God, you use about Jesus's fully human nature. Got it? We all tracking? All right. Now, one other piece. When I say that Jesus became fully human, I don't mean human like us. You go, what? I thought that was a point. Hold up. Now, I came up with this concept so it has holes. I came up with it like yesterday. No, I was laying in bed, and I wrote it on a post-it note. Okay, so, so is it theologically sound? I don't know. The first time I delivered it, I had people argue with me and add two more categories. So anyway, we're going with mine because I have the microphone. All right, so... For all practical purposes, there's four types of man. I want you to think about if you went into Target and were shopping for vacuums, there's four models, all right? So there's four models of human beings that you can select from. The first one is called original man. Original man was Adam and Eve. Do we remember that they were built pretty awesome? They were sinless. They were created by the very hand of God. Now they screwed up. And they became the second model, fallen man. And that's everyone after Adam and Eve. That's all of us, fallen man. We got it? Then there is redeemed man. When you trust in Jesus Christ and give your life over to him, it says, behold, all things have become new. You are a new creation in Christ. You are now partakers in the divine nature of God. Sons and daughters of God, you're called. That's a third type, right? Then there's glorified man. Everybody understand that when we die here, our bodies are not legitimate for eternal. So we get changed. We have a new nature. We even have a new body that interacts with eternity and interacts with the new world, the new heavens, and new earth that God's going to create. We will know things that we don't know now. We will have sin eradicated in us and we will be glorified. Make sense? There's four. We are number what? Two. Or three, we're either fallen or redeemed, depending on whether or not you trust in Jesus. I don't know where you're at, okay? Jesus was number one. Jesus was like Adam. Jesus was like Eve. 
Why? Because he was sinless. Created by the very hand of God and placed into the womb of Mary. Do we remember that? He was not of fallen nature. He was more human than we are. We are a messed up version. He was the perfect. Only three people on earth have ever been category number one. Adam, Eve, Jesus. Now, that means that he will do things slightly different than we would. He will engage with our world slightly different. I want you to picture the fact of when he withdraws to be with the Father, the download is clear. When we withdraw and go into prayer, we have all types of distractions and messed up sin in our lives and stuff that's blocking us and screwing up everything, right? We're still wrestling with the flesh in that way. Jesus was not. All right? All right, let's keep moving forward. Verse 8. I'm going to read 8 and 9, then we'll tear it apart. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Now, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. All right, we can handle this. Now, in putting everything in subjection underneath mankind in general, we don't see the world in subjection to man. We see quite the opposite. We became so self-involved, we're not running anything. It's running us. In talking about Jesus, we do know that Jesus is on the throne of God, but does the world look like he's running it? No, bad people are out there doing bad things and bad things are happening to good people and the world is still in chaos. So no, it doesn't look like Jesus is running things, but is he? Yes, he is. Therefore, he allows the bad guys to rule for a time for his purposes. And then at one point he'll close it out and get rid of them and rule rightly. Make sense? All right. But we see, verse 9, now all scholars know that we have now laser-focused on Jesus in verse 9. We're not talking about mankind, we're talking about Jesus. But we see him, meaning we can observe his behavior and how things went. We see Jesus, who for a little while, little while, incarnation, birth through death, here on earth, for a little while was made, there's that phrase, lower than the angels, namely Jesus, But he was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. What? I thought Jesus was always awesome. How was he crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death? Well, I want you to think about it in a couple ways. The first thing is that Jesus can get stuff like glory and honor... Because in his humanity, he did some amazing things. So things can be added to him. You can't add to God, but you can add to humanity. He went through and lived a human life absolutely sinless and perfect to the obedience of the Father all the way through death. Handled every temptation. Did every ritual thing right. Adhered to the law. Went under the law. Did it perfectly. All the way through. Why did he do all that work? So he could trade with you. That's the point. Is that you have your screwed up life. I have my screwed up life. Jesus said, do you want to trade? I did it perfect. Can we trade? I'll take your bad one. You can have my good one. 
That's the point of the cross. Now, in another sense, he was glorified because of his suffering in the sense that imagine a warrior finishing a war and marching through the streets and we're all cheering. Yeah. And we give him a new name. You're a killer of giants. You're the master strategist. You're this, you're that. We're singing out new things about what he accomplished in the same way. The son of God came down to earth, defeated death, destroyed the power of the devil on the cross. And we cheer. Yeah. Right. Makes sense. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Here's what's really cool about it. Remember I told you that Adam and Eve screwed it up? That they were given the task to subject creation underneath them and master it well. They blew it. Guess what? Another man showed up and did it right. Fixed it. I'll take creation on. You blew it. I'll do it perfect. That's why the Bible calls Jesus the second Adam is he was created, he was sinless, to walk into this world and redeem all of creation and to do what humanity was always supposed to do in the first place. And he did it excellent. Yeah? All right, we pick it up in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, meaning God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make their founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, quote, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. What does that mean? We'll go back up to verse 10. For it was fitting that he, God, the father for whom it's all about. He is the whole purpose of reality. For by whom all things exist, last week we talked about Jesus is the creator and sustainer of the world. Now it's being used of God interchangeably. You watching it? In bringing many sons to glory, hold up, all sons to glory or many sons to glory? Many. What does that mean? It means Jesus died for the sins of the world, but that only becomes effective For those who trust in him as Lord and Savior. What does that mean? It means not everybody's getting saved, contrary to recent books being published. Yeah? It's not right. In bringing many sons to glory should make their founder, talking about Jesus, that word in Greek means source, champion, one who brings it about, the pioneer that, that, destroys the way so that they might be able to follow after him that that in bringing many sons to glory should make their founder their source of their salvation perfect through suffering how did how was jesus made perfect through suffering i thought he was perfect the sinless lamb of god how do you make jesus perfect first of all we have to wrap our head around what it means in greek greek word for perfect means Fully carry out the design intent. When Jesus came here, he came to die. When he suffered and died, he fully completed what he was here to do. In another way, he was made perfect in suffering 
because as in his humanness, he did everything the Father asked him to do perfectly as a representative of mankind. Got it? All right. Anybody lost yet? Good. Verse 11. For he who sanctifies, he who cleans people up and makes them like God, he who fixes them, he who works on us on a daily basis, meaning God who does these things, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, us, we all have one source, and that's obviously from the Father. Right? We're all tied back in and we become the family of God. That's not a new concept to us. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Brothers means shared experience, identified with. Jesus isn't afraid to say we're family. That's not a concern for him, of course. And then he quotes Psalm 22, just to use the phrase brothers. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, he quotes Isaiah 8:17 and then 18. I will put my trust in him, and behold, I and the children God has given me. Here's the only side note I want to say about that. As I mentioned earlier, when you become a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ, you get a new nature. You are no longer merely fallen man. You are now empowered. You now have the Holy Spirit working on you while you sleep. Empowering you to become different sort of person consistently breaking bondages all around your life Consistently on a moment-by-moment basis setting you more and more and more free That when you have trusted in the lord, he has cleansed out your past sin. He removes shame and guilt He begins to do these wiping clean things He washes your feet like he did with Peter and the disciples so that even when you walk through this world and get garbage on you, even if you smear it on yourself, he cleans you up. I got to tell you this. When you see all that Jesus has done, how do we not walk with a smile on our face and victory in our hearts? Yeah. Pick it up in verse 14. Since therefore the children, meaning human beings, share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood. He became flesh and dwelt among us. That through death, and only humans die, through his humanity, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now, how does the devil have the power of death? Is it like... The devil has all power over people that die. Is he the little grim reaper guy? No, he's not. How does he have the power of death? Because he's the one seeking to destroy and lures people into temptation to make it about them. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. If he can tempt you to sin, he can lead you to die. And he's the only one focused on that and his crew. So... He is the agent of death because he's the agent of temptation and destruction. Make sense? Jesus came to beat him down. Look at this. It says, and verse 15, deliver all those, us human beings, deliver all those who through fear of death 
were subject to lifelong slavery. How are we made slaves by being afraid of death? Well, let's make it practical. In their world, they had a lot of persecution. So let's run the scenario. I put a gun to your head. If you do not cave in your faith, I'm going to shoot you right here, right now. Put a bullet through your brain. Now, if you believe that this life is everything there is, if you believe that you better protect your life at all costs because when you die, it's over, you're going to be pretty tempted to cave, yeah? If you believe that this life is it, then Satan can get in your head in all sorts of temptations. Why? You know what? You're only young once. Come on, you got to take advantage of this. We're never going to have this shot again. You're getting older. Clock's ticking. You know what? You need to make sure to do this, 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 and this. And I understand. You know what? No, it's probably not the nicest thing to do. But to be honest with you, we're never going to have this shot again. you got to take advantage of the time. Man, you got to sow your wild oats. You're not going to have any access to go back in time. All those temptations become literal. If this is it. But what if it's not? What if we're just getting started and the best is yet to be and it's not here? What if we're just passing through and moving on? What if you do get another shot and another shot where you're actually built to engage with it with satisfaction? What if all the awesome is later? What if this is just a test run? What if this is a very short amount of time where you have to go through tensions, but you know that when you die, you're finally free? What if this gives you an access to engage into the eternal state for which you are designed, which you can engage with God unhindered? What if it's better there? Then all of a sudden we become like Paul, right? Click, gun to his head. Paul, give up your faith. His answer was what? To me, to live is Christ. To die, gain. What you got on me? Pull the trigger. Let's go. You got nothing. I don't care where I go. I go from one glory to a better glory. Bring it. And there's no fear of death. Are we all tracking on this? For surely, verse 16, it is not angels that he helps. The whole focus isn't on angels, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's us, believers, Jews. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Wait, wait, he had to be made like his brother. Why? I had a little guy. I don't know how old he was. I would venture to say he was probably... Nine. Came up to me last night. It was awesome. I love when little kids fire this stuff out. And he looks and he goes, why'd God have to do it that way if God can do anything? And I said, well, first of all, he set the rules. He started this whole thing. God made rules and now he operates within them. He goes, why does God have to follow any rules? I go, because he set up the game. Let's say God designs tennis. When you design tennis, you still have to keep it in the lines. That's the point of tennis. And he goes, oh, yeah. Jesus didn't have to do it this way. God didn't have to do it this way. But when God set up a system like he set up, there were certain rules that apply. And the rules that are this. To get a human forgiven, it requires human death 
It's the only way it works. Remember the whole uh, sacrificial system in the Old Testament? The whole animal thing never was legitimate. It never covered anything. It was like a down payment. Kind of like, hey, man, I'll get you later. Here's the goat. I'll die later, dude. Just not today, right? That's really what it was because the whole time God wanted the life of the person. That's the only way to cover over it. But Jesus didn't want us to die. So in his judicial system, he steps in and goes, I'll take your hit. You need human life? Check this out. I will take on humanity. I'll do it perfect, but I'm fully God so I can pay an infinite amount. How cool is that? He had to be made like his brothers in every way, fully human, that he might be a legitimate sacrifice under the system that God set up. That he might be the sinless lamb of God, the sacrifice that would take away the sins of the world of people. Is Jesus amazing? So that he might become a merciful and high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What's that mean? It has two pieces. Propitiation means to make the relationship right by appeasing wrath. Fixing what God had to lash out against. That's what the word means. It's just a fancy way of saying that. You can either say a whole bunch of sentences or you can use one little cool word. Propitiation. Look at verse 18. We close with this. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Ooh, last big piece. You ready? We shortchange Jesus. And here's why. Whenever you're, su- you're suffering, right? Man, you're there and you're struggling with alcohol or drugs or, or sex addiction or you're dealing with something like that. And then some well-meaning but stupid and ignorant Christian comes up to you and says, Jesus knows what you're going through. You're like, shut up. He does not. Here's why. Because... The question is, did the temptations matter to Jesus? Was he legitimately tempted? First of all, we know he was fully human, so he got tired and hungry, meaning God took on limitations. In other words, when you fast for 40 days, guess what you are? Super hungry. That's legitimate temptation. However, he suffered more than we do in our temptations, and here's why. When we suffer in temptation... We cave in about a million little ways to let off pressure. Let's go. Let's run this scenario. Satan comes up to you. Dude, you got to cheat on your wife. All of a sudden, you immediately lock into that thought and you go, all right, how am I going to run with this? I'm presented with a scenario. There's the woman. I need to interact with that. How am I going to do that? Instead of taking it head on, in general, we will run the gamut of sorting it out. When we sort it out, we let off pressures. Anybody know what a pressure cooker is? The old school, lock it down, and the intense pressure inside cooks it faster. When you want to open it, what do you do? You put the little thing on the top, and it goes, and it lets out a little bit of steam at a time. We do that with our temptations. Why? Because then we start running the scenario, you know what, she is hot. You know what, I might be able to go there in my head, but wait, 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 what am I doing? What am I doing? I, don't, I, I can't go there. 
But you know what? All right, here's the deal. I may be able to get a little bit closer. Okay, you know what? No, no, no. That, Joseph has got to flee from that. And the whole time we're letting off little pressure, little bit by little bit. We're entertaining it a little bit here. We're entertaining it a little bit there. Then we start going, you know what? As a matter of fact, this is what's so frustrating about this. Because my wife is, then we start degrading our wife. That's a sin right there. We have all these ways of justifying our actions. And when we justify, we end up sinning. But it lets off some of the pressure. And then finally when we're done with it, we go, you know what, I'm not doing it. And we think we're victorious. I didn't do it. Look at that. I'm faithful, legitimate. Here's what Jesus did. No release of pressure whatsoever. Head on all the way to the wall. Took all the hits. Let none of the compromise, none of the garbage in his life. Walked right into it. Smash right in his face. Took all the temptation. So next time you're hurting and you go, God, this hurts so bad. Jesus, I don't want to do this anymore. He looks, he goes, I know. Can Jesus really hurt like that? Anybody read the story of the Garden of Gethsemane? You sweating great drops of blood? Are you falling apart? Because whatever he was about to go into, he didn't want to go there. And he was tempted to walk out. What did he do? No escapism. Father, is there any other way? No. Let's go. Jesus gets it. And he gets it more than you'll ever know. Let's close in prayer, and i got a closing challenge. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for breathing new life into our theology. Jesus, who you are and what you did is astounding. We don't fully understand it, but we appreciate what we get. So may you be glorified in us and lifted high. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here's your closing challenge. Closing challenge is simply this. When we move forward this week, prayer is not our last option, it's our first option. Instead of dealing with all our temptations and struggles, and then finally when we're going to cave, we finally pray about it, you pray first. And you immediately go to the source. Jesus, you have everything I need. If I need to escape out of this, I want to go to you immediately right here, right now. We do not allow anything else to steal our attention. But the first thing that we do is run to prayer in our Lord. Amen? Amen. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.